What a great chapter of our Bible. Man. After preparing for this morning, I, uh, I felt like if somebody limited me to preach from only a handful of texts in all of the Bible, this would be one of them. And uh, really, really excited to walk through these words uh, with you this morning. Uh, this passage reminds me of a simple little prayer that my sister and I used to pray as children, uh, typically before dinner. Maybe some of you have, uh, have prayed this as well. God is great. God is good. And we thank him for our food. Amen. I didn't get a lot of spiritual instruction or guidance and help uh, as a child, but I got that. And I didn't even realize what I was getting. I just thought that's what good, you know, religious people did was they thanked God for their food. But that first part, God is great. God is good. I, there's nothing I could have said more profound, more true, more life-changing than that little phrase right there. And as I remembered that, I just thought, I believe it. I really do. And I take it for granted. I just sort of expect that, you know, you just go through life and God is great and God is good. And what, you know, what time is dinner? <laughs> When's the game come on? So easy to take this for granted. And that's, that's why this passage was so helpful for me. Because as I thought about who it was written to. And what they must have been struggling with. Wow. Just powerful. I want you to think about this. Isaiah is writing in... Uh, the late 8th century, okay? Remember, he was writing about the Assyrian uh, invasion. Um, Israel is in big trouble. Judah is under judgment. We've read it again and again and again, chapter after chapter. And then as we get at the end of uh, chapter 39, right in that, Babylon is mentioned. And so I'm sure everybody's kind of going, Babylon? Where did they come from? Well, Isaiah is writing about a time a hundred years down the road. And so I'm sure to his immediate audience, this was a little bit strange. He's a prophet and sometimes those prophets are kind of weird. But it, so he's talking about a time a hundred years from then. And sure enough, Babylon comes. And we're going to read about that. But that is who this was written for. So as, as listeners, it, it's written for us too, obviously. But, but this morning, what I want you to do is I want you to imagine that you were standing in Jerusalem when the empire of Babylon came in. You saw your friends and your family tortured, murdered in the streets. You saw the wall, the temple, torn to pieces, put in flames. You saw everything reduced to rubble. And then you walked mile upon mile upon mile to Babylon. 
And everything that you thought you knew about what it meant to be God's chosen people is all up for grabs. You you can't really comprehend. I mean, I know God judges his people. I know we get disciplined, but the temple is gone. And we are servants to some of the most ruthless people on earth in all of earth's history. And Isaiah writes, comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It's astonishing. It's the best news ever. Probably hard to believe. But these people are in exile and they have gotten a word of hope. God has not forsaken his people. He intends to return them, to restore them. That word comfort will appear 13 times in uh, the next 26 chapters. He says to speak tenderly. That's literally in the Hebrew, speak heart. Just beautiful. One commentator said these are love lavished words. Let me tell you what he says here. It's not very obvious, honestly. He says the warfare has ended Uh, Literally, the hardship, the discipline, the the time of duress is completed. They certainly were disciplined by the Lord. But the most important thing is that hostilities have ended. In a sense, they were at war with their God. Because they wanted to go their own way. They wanted to be their own God. But the hostilities are over. Their iniquity is pardoned. And this is where it gets a little tricky because it seems like you've been disciplined and therefore because of that, your sins have now been forgiven, which is works-based, right? And then you go to the next, next phrase there. She, that is Judah, has received from the Lord Lord's hand double for all her sins. Some will interpret that to mean that God punished you and finally he's punished you enough that he's forgiven you. So we have to be very, very careful here because doesn't that run completely contradictory to everything else in our Bible? We're going to get to chapter 53 in Isaiah and who are we going to learn about there? The suffering servant surely verse this is verse 4 and 53 he has borne our griefs and carried away our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
Your warfare has ended. Your iniquity is pardoned. God has given you double for your sin, not in punishment, but in grace. With his wounds, we are healed. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's this beautiful idea that the double here, uh, Tim Keller speaks of this, Martin Lloyd-Jones speaks of this, the double as it's called is this idea that you have not only been forgiven which is honestly what most people, most Christians, that's kind of how they think about what it means to be a Christian is, at least I'm forgiven and I'm going to heaven. But that's such a short-sighted view of salvation. Because not only has he forgiven you, not only has he pardoned you, not only has Christ taken every bit of the judgment and wrath that you deserved and I deserved, but he actually imputed the righteousness of Christ on you as if you had never sinned. That's double, baby. Unbelievable. Astonishing words for a people in, the, in exile. And aren't we, if you're a Christ follower, you are in exile, living in a broken world. This is not your home. But man, don't you need words of hope like this. That you have peace with God. Your sins have been forgiven. And you've been given the double. That's a good word. And so next we get to really uh, an exhortation to spread the word. Like this is great news. We need to tell everybody. Everybody needs to know this. And this is an incredibly hard part of chapter 40 to, to translate and interpret. But we're going to do our best to work through it. This begins in verse 3. There's three big words I want you to get here. Prepare, believe, and proclaim. Prepare, believe, and proclaim. He says, a voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, the voices in this part of the passage aren't really identified. That's what makes it challenging. We're not sure who's talking and who's listening and who's responding and what are they talking about. It, it gets a little crazy here. But the bottom line is the idea here is, and Israel would have gotten this, prepare a way for the Lord. It's like royalty is coming. And whenever a king were, uh, were going somewhere, approaching a city, they would literally make a boulevard for him. They would clear everything out of the way, make it nice and smooth, roll out the red carpet, so to speak. And that was because of who's coming. It's the king. So the idea literally was move everything out of the way, smooth everything out, fill in all the ditches, make it smooth all the way in. No obstacles so that the king can come in and bring benevolence that only he can provide. Get that? This, of course, is speaking to a people. So Isaiah is saying, hey, you, uh, exiles, who've been under judgment, who have now been forgiven. Make a way for the Lord. 
in your heart. Clear away every obstacle, every distraction, anything that might impede the work of the Lord in your life because he's coming and he's coming with benevolence. God is great and God is good and he's coming. Prepare for his arrival. John the Baptist who is identified with this passage during his lifetime. He was the voice crying in the wilderness. And what did he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Saying the same thing. Turn away from that old way of life. Turn away from trying to be your own God. Remove every obstacle that might keep the Lord from working in your life. Turn to him and receive everything that he has for you. Repentance is the key to preparation. And then this second part, verses 6 through 8, this is probably the most difficult to to understand kind of who's saying what. But it says, a voice says, cry. And I said, assuming that's Isaiah, what shall I cry? And then we read about essentially the futility of humanity and it doesn't seem like that's what Isaiah is supposed to cry. It doesn't seem like he's supposed to say, hey everybody, I just want you to know you're like grass and you just wither and fade and and die, but the word of the Lord remains forever. It seems like, it's almost like he's talking to himself. He's like, I'm being told to cry something, but I don't even know if these people can get it. They're like grass. They're very frail. (laughs) They get burned up in the sun and they're gone tomorrow. What am I supposed to say to them? Here's what you say. The word of our God stands forever. You'll be gone tomorrow, but that's something you can put everything into. Believe that. Believe the word of the Lord. First Peter uh, 1, 24 and 25, he actually uh, uses this passage there. He talks about all flesh being grass, but he ends with this phrase, this word, the word of the Lord, is the good news that was preached to you. So prepare a way for the Lord and then believe the word of the Lord. Put every bit that you've got into that because it's trustworthy. It will never fade away. I like what uh, commentator John Oswalt says. Humanity can neither save itself nor hinder the one who determines to save. His word is good. Then lastly, proclaim. Verse 9. He tells Zion and Jerusalem to go up on a high place and proclaim the good news. And here it is. Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. That's a little surprising. Because I get the king coming with a strong arm and full of might and clearing everything out. I get that. But a shepherd tending his flock, it sounds so gentle. 
And it is. God is great. And God is good. He is a tender warrior. And he takes care of his sheep with the greatest of care. We have a king and shepherd. Behold your God. The king rules with power and we need to know that. We need to know that our God is powerful, that he can do whatever he needs to do. And we need to know that he is tender and gentle, that he cares. It says his reward, his recompense is coming with him and it sort of sounds like, you know, the, the jewels and the fine clothing and everything else that he would bring along with him. But the, the idea here is that his flock is his reward. Uh, Tim Keller says, you know, what do you give somebody who has everything? Like God. You give him a people that he redeemed. He gets all the credit. We are his reward. We are his recompense. Because we've been pardoned and adopted. We've been given the double. Remember, these are exiles in Babylon. They've literally lost everything. And they're being told of their benevolent king coming to get them and take them home. What great news. Now, there's a problem that Isaiah speaks to here. And this is very understandable. I would never in a minute criticize this thought. And I've had it and you have too. But here's the problem. After all that we've just talked about, here's the problem. You've got a people who have lost everything, who are suffering beyond imagination, and they've got two questions. Why is my way hidden from the Lord, and why is my right disregarded by my God? Why am I being treated so unfairly? Why have I had to endure such difficulty? I want to play out these two phrases because it's very important for us to identify with this, though we may not be in their particular circumstances. I'm sure we might think some of these things. My way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded. It's the idea that God doesn't know what's going on with me. And the assumption is if he did, he would change it and make it wonderful just because I want him to. So he either doesn't know or he doesn't care. Like maybe he knows that my life is a wreck and he doesn't care. Uh, Judah spent 70 years in Babylon. So maybe in year one or year two or year three when they read Isaiah 40, they thought, okay, well, we'll put in a few years here and, and maybe God will make it short and sweet. Now, if they read Jeremiah, I think he wrote of the 70-year captivity, but maybe they missed him. My way is hidden from the Lord. Maybe he's forgotten me. Maybe he misplaced me. I mean, there's a whole lot in the world and a whole lot in the universe and everything else going along. Maybe he just kind of missed me. 
And if that were the case, then God's competence is questioned. Maybe he just can't be all of the God that I thought he was supposed to be. And over again on the other side, maybe he's forsaken me. Maybe he's dismissed me, which that's all about his character. He said he would never forsake us, reject us. That's the question. And Isaiah answers that question. He says, let's, let's really take a look at who God is. And perhaps that will help you think differently about these two ideas of his competence and his character. Back up to verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. And like, he's going to go through a list of things. He, he's greater than everything. I, I don't care what you conceive in your mind. I don't care how big it is, how wonderful, how marvelous, how surprising, astonishing, or any of that. He is greater than every time. And that's the argument that Isaiah is going to make here. If you're wondering, is my God competent? Can he actually take care of me and everything else in the universe? Or is his character what it appears to have been? What I thought I understood about the character of God, is that indeed true? He says, yeah, he's greater in competence and character than you could ever imagine. He begins with creation and just, I mean, literally just use the metaphor. Think about all of the waters of the earth in the palm of his hand. Think about the Lord sitting around right before he spoke a word and made everything and like he was going, hey, can somebody give me a hand here? I'm not, like, I'm not sure what formula to work out. I'm not sure what ingredients to put together. I'm not sure what compounds will actually generate life. Can somebody help me out here? Can you imagine that? Isaiah can't. Like human wisdom. In, in contrast, what a joke. The nations, I, like I do think about right now, a few nations in our world that are beating their chest like they're really something. And I'm going, compared to God, you're a speck. You're nothing. He could speak a word and you're gone. You are evaporated. National power. He's greater than that. Isaiah asks, verse 18, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? Is there anything that you can think of that begins to approach the magnificence of our God? And the answer is no, of course not. Psalm 96, 5, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. He is the creator. 
So a gentle rebuke in verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? He's speaking to Judah. These are God's chosen people. They had the the Pentateuch and the prophets and the priests and the kings and the temple. A promised land. I mean, they had it all. And so he's saying like, don't you know? Like, didn't you get the memo? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. If you're wondering about the competence, the greatness of God, stop wondering. Literally, look around. Look up. God exercises absolute, unrivaled authority over all of creation, all of the earth, all of its inhabitants, all of its atmosphere, all of its rulers, everything. God himself asks in verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. So he's, he's pointing their gaze upward to the stars. And I, you know, I know, I love to go out on a starry night and look up at the black sky and see the little sparkles and it's sort of quaint. But you just need to think about it for a minute. Do you realize how big our galaxy is? Just our galaxy Like, we're not even talking about the universe. Like, that might blow a circuit. (laughs) I I think I just read 120,000 light years in diameter. I'm not a big mathematician. That seems like a lot from edge to edge. It's estimated that our galaxy alone has about 100 billion, billion Stars. And then there may be as many as 100 million galaxies in the universe. And we're kind of an average sized galaxy. He knows everyone by name. He put every little sparkle of light right where it sits. And he commands its brightness. God is great and God is good. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork, Psalm 19.1. So why do you ask these questions about the competence and the character of God? It's okay. I get it. But, but maybe this is where we go to answer those questions that nag at our hearts so that we can carry on. The answer is in verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, 
the creator of the ends of the earth. Twelve times there are words used in this passage about fainting and being weary and power and strength and, and all of that. John Oswalt says humans at their most vigorous, like youths and young men are mentioned here and that would have been the example of the, the fittest, those with the greatest strength and potential and they grow weary and faint. Humans at their most vigorous are mortal and fallible and God is not. So they who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. Let me tell you quickly what waiting involves. Four things. It involves listening. We're so comfortable talking. We're so comfortable telling God what's on our, on our minds, like in terms of our needs and like, God, here's what I need you to do. Waiting doesn't mean that we don't share with the Lord our heart, but but listen, do you ever listen? Quietly, silently, just listen. Watching. Assuming that the activity of God is all around you and that the Holy Spirit will allow you to see his hand moving and invite you to join in with that. Waiting on the Lord. It's, it's not just killing time. It's an active engagement. Listening, watching, hoping, not always scheming. You see, schemers don't hope because they're trying to come up with a contingency plan. But hopers believe in the character and the competence of God. They believe that God is great and God is good and he will accomplish what needs to be accomplished here. I will just be ready and willing and able to do whatever I'm called to do. And that's the last one, obey. Is it your heart, is it your intention to obey what you're told? It's not a power thing and it certainly isn't a way of getting God on your side or getting his favor. It's just about who's God? And if he's good and he tells you to do something, does that move you to action? They that wait on the Lord... They that listen and watch, hope and obey, they will be renewed. They will experience liberty in this broken world, even as exiles, like never before. They'll be able to literally walk through this very hard, painful life with real joy. And they will accomplish everything that God intends. So I want to give you a moment to take that in. That felt like a tsunami. But behold your God. And if he really is who he says he is, difference does that make? That's our so what this morning. What difference does it make that God is who he says he is? And how will that change your life today? I'm assuming it'll change it tomorrow and next week and next year and 
to the end of your days. But today, how does our great and good God make a difference for you? Prayerfully consider that.